Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Cynthia. And I'm Yvette. And we are your co-hosts of this new podcast called Cerebronas. Yvette, do you want to explain to our audience of two why we're doing this <laughs> podcast? Yeah, so um, we're both podcast fans. And I'll say for myself that even though now I think I've widened the breadth of my podcast and I've been able to listen to some really dope podcasts that are led by people of color and women of color and queer people of color at first I was mostly listening to the opinions of white men and white women and I just know that they don't have the most interesting opinions and that they're not the only people on this planet that should be allowed to pontificate and I think that it's a radical act to center your voice and to uplift your voice as a woman of color um particularly with the things that we'll be talking about like current events and legal analysis our voices are not centered by mainstream media at all and so this is an opportunity for us to provide that to listeners who might want a different perspective on those things awesome and i'll explain where i our title comes from so it's actually Sere Brona. There's a hyphen in the middle. And when I was little, because I like to read and study and do my homework, uh, people would make fun of me and call me Cerebrita. And they said it like affectionately, but also to make fun of me. And I'm still a Cerebrita, clearly. Yvette and I are both at Stanford Law and you have to do a lot of studying and reading. Um, but we also grew up to be cabronas. And so we were dropping the diminutive and embracing the cabrona and keeping the brona so cerebronas yes um so i guess i should say a bit about myself yeah please um i'm a 2l i'm in my second year at stanford law i grew up in the bay area uh my parents immigrated here from el salvador fleeing the civil war in the 1980s um, went to Yale for undergrad and uh, had a whole set of experiences there that hopefully we'll get to talk about at a later date. I'm sure we will. <laughs> um, and then kind of after a certain point realized that I needed to go to law school because I felt like that was the right vehicle for social change. I think I've changed my mind now, but I'm still here. <laughs> Cynthia, do you want to tell us what you're saying? Yeah, so I am. I grew up in Los Angeles in Rosemead. I loved it there. I really, really did. It That community and my experiences there and my family have definitely been the whole reason for who I am and what I've done. Uh, but I left when I was 18 to Grinnell College, this small liberal arts college in Iowa. I was a posse scholar, so I got a full tuition scholarship, which is my explanation for why I went to Iowa. Um, and yeah, that was a complicated experience, which I'm sure, again, we'll talk about later. But it was, I think it was definitely in the end, the right choice for me. And after that, I worked two years in state government. I did a fellowship um, in Sacramento. And that was really, I really enjoyed that. Um, and now I'm here at Stanford. Just as a bit of background, I guess I skipped this. My parents are from Mexico. They both immigrated here in the uh, mid 80s I'd say and yeah they've just like really done a, my dad has done a great job my mom has done a great job my dad got a union job and like brought himself and our family out of poverty which has made a, a big difference and I definitely have a lot of privilege because of that um but yeah so that's just like a little bit about me for now cool so we thought that there would be or that it would make sense to have um a series of segments that stay the same every time that we release a podcast um, centered around the things that we wanted to talk about, like law, current events, and politics that we mentioned earlier, as well as just reflections on what it means to be a Latina woman in this society. So um, every episode will be um, giving you all our legal analysis and our sociocultural analysis of the legal <laughs> holdings of cases. Uh, and we'll also be talking about 
a topic of interest that's current in the news. And we'll have a deep thought section where we'll reflect on something that we think needs some deeper reflection. Uh, and then at the end, we'll close out with recommendations of cool stuff that we think you all would benefit from checking out. Okay, well, let's get into it. So we're going to start off with a current event slash news. Yvette, do you want to introduce our topic? Yeah. Um, so uh, recently in the last few months after Trump was elected, there have been numerous reports of undocumented activists being targeted for their political activism, but it's mostly occurred in places where we might think that there that those types of violations are more likely to occur, like in the Deep South. Um, I also say that knowing that there's very fucked up things that, that happen in the Bay Area and no one is really immune from ignorance and bigotry. But there's something to be said about stronger protections for immigrants in the, through California state law. Uh, but recently, that same type of targeting for an undocumented activist's political speech has occurred here in L.A. Um, Claudia Rueda, who's a 22-year-old immigrant rights activist, she's a Cal State L.A. student, uh, was picked up by Customs and Border Patrol. And it's suspected that she was picked up because she successfully led a campaign to release her mother out on bond. Her mother is Teresa, and she was um, she was detained after because of the fact that she was in the same home as another undocumented person that ICE was trying to target. She was swept up um, as part of the raid just because she was physically present at the time. And Claudia led a successful campaign to highlight um, the ways in which her mother was actually not involved in any of the criminal activity that ICE was targeting and tr trying to implicate her with. Um, and she, oh, and the thing that is particularly troubling about this case um, is that Claudia is DACA eligible. Um, and which is a population that Trump had promised would not be targeted during his ramping up of deportation. Yeah, I don't think what's surprising about this is that Trump broke a promise like that at all, like not at all. But it's really just because some people might look at this and say like, oh, it was just part of raids, right? This was not targeted or this was not uh, they weren't retaliating against her for her activism. But she was outside moving her car for part like so that for street park street sweeping. It's they had no reason to stop her. They had no reason to detain her. If they did, you know, a, like a quick conversation of two minutes, one minute would have made it clear that whatever they were there in the area for did not involve her at all. But they still detained her. And what's really fucked up is in one of the articles you sent me, Yvette, they highlight that. Nobody knew where she went like they didn't nobody was like nobody had the kindness or the thoughtfulness to go inside and let them know like, hey, we've detained your daughter. Um, we're taking her. Maybe she didn't want to tell them what apartment or anything because she didn't want to get anyone else looped in. And I can understand that. But just not allowing her to communicate them, like having to go search for her and figure out where she was like that. That is just just shows how inhumane our system is. But it's just ridiculous. Like, she was literally moving a parked car for street sweeping, and they picked her up in Los Angeles. The amount of people who would need to get off their ass in Los Angeles and join the causes, like, is, is huge. Because this stuff is happening in our own backyards. Yeah. <clears throat> I totally agree. And I think that... I, I think that, for me, this highlights the, the total falsity of this idea of the home being a sanctity or being like a sacred space um, within Fourth Amendment jurisprudence because I, I think it's pretty clear that she was being targeted just by the fact that they apprehended her outside of her home. That, t that means to me that they were specifically targeting her house or at the very least her neighborhood. But most likely her house, because I know that ICE does, they, 
they, they do target people outside of their homes. And it's it leads to this culture of fear where that's why we hear reports of people who are not leaving to do their groceries or to go to the bank or to like do very important things that everyone needs to do to just lead their lives because they're so afraid. And, you know, uh, stories like Glavia's prove that that fear isn't unfounded. Yeah. And I'm just like, this permeates so much of like the day to day life of someone, you know, so I'm thinking, especially like, I know for my own family, like during holidays, it'll be, we'll always be very intentional with like, oh, whose house are we going to celebrate at? Are we going to go here or here? And when someone, you know, frequently someone will be like, you know, I'd rather not drive because I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of cops who are stopping. And so because of my status, like that's too, too risky, you know? And so it's just like, that for me was a norm growing up. And now to see like how this is going to be just changing and being so much more aggressive, um, and Yvette, I, you were, you know, when we were talking offline, or you were, you mentioned how, like, conservatives value free speech so much, but yet they won't see this as a problem. They won't, they won't consider this an invasion of free speech, not just of her, but of the community she comes from and the community she represents. Like, this is trying to shut down their activism, their voices, not, not in, like, make them so scared that they don't speak out. Yeah, and I think your response to that was very accurate which is like ultimately conservatives don't see people who are undocumented as human and don't see them as deserving of rights Uh, they don't see them as being worthy of protection worthy of protection within the american legal system at at the very least Uh, and i think it it just proves a serious hole in their argument because when people push back and say that we should regulate hate speech that hate speech isn't a productive part of the of dialogue they say that no that we need to hear everything even the things that are very offensive because through the intermeshings of all of these different opinions even the offensive ones i guess especially the offensive ones then eventually we'll get to some new enlightened place but I would think that if that was the premise, then the voices of those who are most marginalized would be the uh, like very, very important because they would be missing from the mainstream dialogue. And even if they're offensive, like even if they're offensive to you because you feel like they don't deserve a voice because they broke the law, then right, like by your own logic, they should be allowed to participate in the conversation because they'll add to, some, you know, we'll get to some more enlightened place because everyone's voices are being heard. And then, yeah, I mean, that's just how you know that that line of logic isn't fully thought out or isn't at least genuine. Or apply to everyone equally, right? Like sometimes it's just a problem. It's like, fine, you can have this logic, but apply it across the board, not selectively. Uh, And then one other thing I want to draw attention to now is that now she's in detention and like, they call it detention, but really it's jail. Like most detention centers are not, I wouldn't say most, I need to look at the numbers, but a lot of detention centers are actually like the county jails doubling up, you know? So it's just like, here's an individual who hasn't committed a crime. And even individuals who have committed crimes, there's no reason we should treat them so inhumanely. But, you know, we're essentially putting people who are just going around their day, like moving their car into a jail for Lord knows how long. And these conditions, conditions are awful you know so uh truth be told this is actually yvette and mine's second time recording this episode um we had some malfunctions the first time but in the first episode we were talking about the conditions at a detention center and so it's just it i can't help but think back to that conversation yvette and just consider like what are the conditions now in this detention center where where they're keeping claudia yeah And even, you know, even private detention centers, which are technically not county jails, um, and which are, those can be among the worst, actually. They can be, like, the conditions there can be worse. Yeah, because they don't have the budgets. They're not meant to be, like, long time. Yeah, so, like, the issue with county jails is that they're meant to house people for the short term, not the Mm -hmm. long term. So when people's cases are delayed for years, then they're in situations where they're in a facility that doesn't have an outside yard with sunlight. So 
these facilities are just not the the county jails are not meant to house people long term and people's immigration cases are drag on for a long period of time and then with private detention centers it's that they're motivated by profit even more than counties are and so they do really gross things to try and make detention profitable yeah or just keeping people in there for a longer time um but just to wrap up the segment we just wanted to draw attention to this because this is a big problem and we really need people to pay attention and be there for each other and the community um, the last thing I, w- I just want to say about this is we hope, Claudia, you, you know, you're staying strong. People care. People are reading. People are listening. And we're fighting for you. And just we hope for others who are in similar situations as Claudia. Don't be frightened. You know, Yvette and I are just two people. But we're trying to get our law degrees out here. We're learning how to pr- uh, help in deportation cases. So, you know, we're here. We're, we're trying so stay strong, stay stay fierce. Yeah, and if people are interested, then you can go on social media and look up the hashtag Free Claudia. And um, there's also a lot of people posting the specific CBP, Customs and Border Patrol number that you can call to voice your concern about this case. So if you are so inclined, then you should do that. Because, I mean, I don't know. I'm always so jaded about these things, but... It can't hurt, and she deserves all the effort that we can give, so. Yeah. Okay, so our second segment. Second segment is, so I guess we're doing our deep thoughts section now. Um, we thought that it would be, it would make sense in this first episode to talk about the difficulties of being women of color and specifically Latina women at elite law schools and what it means to navigate that what the emotional implications of that are. Yeah, and I was thinking maybe just to start off, we can, like, help define the space, right? So, like, what are these spaces when we're talking about an elite institution? Like, what kind of space is it that we're navigating? So, if I was, yeah, so just to be brief about it, I feel like, major- like, majority white, uh, major- maybe not majority, but, like, a lot of wealth, a lot of wealth. Definitely majority wealth. Okay, majority wealth. <laughs> they throw out some weird statistics sometimes about how many people receive. I'm using air quotes, financial aid. Like, so. Yeah. But I think those numbers are off. I mean, yeah. We would have to look in deeper into what those numbers really mean, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were to include, like, people who just take government loans. Yeah. Which I don't think yeah. says anything about what your, f- you know, like, what your overall safety net is yeah what your family can help you out with or just what uh networks of privilege you come from so many networks of privilege here for sure um in terms of professors you know there's some really great professors a couple gems i'd say but you know it's still majority white and and i'd say among professors it might be majority male or maybe that's just been the classes i've been in but i've definitely had less female professors slash instructors than males I think it's 60-40, like 60 male, 40 Okay. in terms of tenure faculty. So that's just, you know, like a, a brief overview of like what kind of space we're navigating. Um, Yvette, why did you choose to apply and come to Stanford? I think that being at Yale was very difficult for me because when you get to a place like that, it's usually because you have like an insane drive as a young person but it that sounds in this like capitalist society that sounds really great like someone who's really driven but it's actually it actually can be very dark because it's like (laughs) actually like you measure your self-worth by external validation as demonstrated by grades and like awards so there's a lot of people who like don't really know what they're doing or why they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They just know that they'll receive praise at the end of it if they do it. And it's really easy to just fall into that mindset if you're if you're predisposed to that or if like that is what your mindset was before 
getting to an elite institution why like do you, that. Why do you think your mindset was that way in high school that got you into that elite institution? Oh, no, this didn't start in high school. It started in, like, first grade. Oh my <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. I really do. I feel like that was very similar for me. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, I, I mean... I think that I had a lot of pressure on me as the child of immigrant parents. Like, my parents would tell me all the time that they literally crossed all these borders so that I could get a good education and have a nice career. And so, you know, I I think like that was an added expectation. And like, my older brother wasn't succeeding in the way that they wanted him to. Um, And so... As soon as they saw even, like, the earliest indication that I would be really successful in school, they tried their hardest to help me succeed. Like, in first grade, my teacher wrote on my report card that I was always going to be a shining star. And that's that's literally something I still remember. I'm 25 years old. I still remember that. I don't remember a lot of things from first grade or kindergarten, Mm -hmm. but I remember that. Uh, And I think that's because, for me through school that's how I was able to feel special and that's how and then I was also like reinforcing these ideas that my parents were instilling in me that education was the way that I was going to be a good brown person I think also maybe because a lot of what you're saying like I relate to in terms of like what my parents told me and how they pushed me to um but something like it wasn't it was that like oh education's how you be a good brown person but it was also i feel like in their eyes like education is the only way you escape poverty it's like the only actual means you have to like just change your your circumstances so that was really influencing my family yeah i think like for my family also though i think it was a little bit of the the socio-cultural capital that you gain that they were interested in me gaining like, my mom has interesting and problematic ideas about what about what having an education means. Like, she, like, for her, a person who's bien educado or bien educada doesn't just mean that they have a formal degree. Like, for her, it also has all these associations of, like, understanding social etiquette. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that that's... I think that that I I understand what she's saying because like you know things like like quote unquote office skills mm-hmm. oftentimes prevent people who don't have white collar professionals in their family from being able to adapt to that kind of environment because there's all these kind of coded things that you have to navigate and it, and yeah. I think my mom picked up on that probably because she felt excluded from it. But I think for her, even even if like subconsciously or unconsciously, or maybe even like she was partially aware of it, I think that she also wanted me to break past that and like learn that etiquette as well. But it's complicated because I think ultimately she was, I think she's ultimately upset that. I like really absorbed a lot of American values. Really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We'll have to dive into that a lot deeper. Yeah. Um, But okay. So you're at Yale. Yeah. So I'm at Yale and I like, I'm young and I am very susceptible to my peers understandings of the world. And so I just feel like, yeah, like I need to succeed, you know, in a way that's, validated and understood by this elite group of people Mm -hmm. and I graduated from Yale and like wasn't very happy with the things that I was doing during that year um because I had thought that I was going to do a master's program related to bilingual education at Cambridge in the UK but couldn't end up getting the scholarship money for it and so I ended up doing jobs that were like things I just wasn't excited about uh and so I just to like fill the void mm-hmm. I just applied to law school I mean it, it had already been a part of my plan it wasn't like a totally random thing but I had planned to take more years off but I felt like I was losing my sense of self and so I just applied and I chose Stanford because I I did want to come back to the Bay Area my family's here and um 
they offered me a good financial aid package going going back to what you were saying about like losing your sense of self i'm wondering how much of that is because like i don't know if you experienced this too and that's part of like the culture of being here and also i think the people that get here and like the personalities that we have um i like on a day when i'm sick and i like skip classes and i sleep and rest and drink a lot of water at the end of the day i feel so shitty i feel like oh my god like i was a terrible human today and i got nothing done i didn't go to class what am i doing if my parents found out they'd be so disappointed in me is did i really work this hard to take a day off and it's just like crazy i think for maybe for more people right but i think like especially for people here how much like our sense of worth is try is like tied to our levels of productivity and like the gold stars we can accumulate right the the gold stars that we can get the accolades that people will give us yeah it's a very dark way to live actually (laughs) and i'm trying to distance myself from it because there have been a few experiences that i've had that um other people have regarded us like very prestigious and they've been the most miserable times of my life uh Yeah, I think fulfillment and satisfaction are just totally untethered from these gold star metrics, you know, Mm -hmm. these like normative standards of success. So I think for the way that I've been able to survive is like by just intentionally taking myself out of the social scene here. Exactly. Same. Same. And I think that that's healthy. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of I mean, this place is so toxic. Like there's so many people here who tell you that you need to befriend Uh, your classmates because they're going to benefit you later on which is just that that's an inherently shitty way of understanding your relationship to other people like oh the only reason i need to interact with you and be nice to you is because you're going to do me a favor later on yeah no and it's it's weird like standards that they have right where it's you're supposed to be really like leave a good reputation right and and make sure that people think well of you and whatnot. But at the same time, like, we're all living around each other. We spend a lot of time together, you know. So we end up, like, drinking together. Like, not by no means me a lot because I, like you, opt out of a lot of the culture around here. Uh, but, you, you know, you just are supposed to see each other in all these scenes. For example, like, right now that it's getting warm, like, a lot of people are tanning outside in their bathing suits, you know. And it's, like, that's perfectly fine and normal. And, like, they should be doing that. Like, taking vitamin D and, like, all that. But it's also really weird to be seen in a bathing suit by your classmates or, you know, where it's just like, oh, but you're su- I'm supposed to know you in this professional setting. So it's like I find it a real like really weird uh, culture you're supposed to navigate. And the other thing, Eva, I, we've talked about this before, about how one of my like the reasons I was hesitant to have this podcast was because I'm not sure of like what's the right way of being in this community and and trying to have a good relationship because I want to get along with people because I want to like people I want to be happy here um navigating like balancing that with being critical and holding people accountable and using our podcast as a space for us to process our feelings you know and our emotions and and our experiences and you know sometimes that's going to involve like anonymous anonymously mentioning things we experience with our classmates right the ways they make us feel uncomfortable the ways they've do things to offend us or the ways they benefit and we don't and how they don't even recognize it all of these things right it's just like how do i allow myself to process this publicly while also navigating my relationships with them on a day-to-day yeah, I've just I've had so many times here where I've just been so outraged. I'm honestly in the legal profession in general, not just like specifically to this context of law school. I've been so outraged by the injustices that I've experienced where I've just wanted to like publicly shame people and like write an op-ed. But it's hard because like I just feel very vulnerable as a Latina woman and like even I just I think Nothing feels guaranteed, even being at a place like Stanford, believe it or not. And I, and I, as I understand it, those feelings never go away. So it's just like no matter where you are, where you're all human and have insecurities and all that. But so, yeah, that's definitely still part of it here. 
yeah i think that i'm i'm just like i think this experience has taught me the limits of what this institution can provide me and it's been very liberating because like there's my actions are restricted or they feel restricted because of these things that people tell me that you know that I need to be careful blah 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 but I'm just realizing that I don't I don't want to be allied or aligned with people whose politics are so distant from mine that I need to censor my politics because I always need to censor myself and I always need to accommodate myself to whiteness and I don't want to live the rest of my life that way and like whatever implications that has for my career my projects like it's gonna be what it's gonna be but I just I don't want to compromise my values for this pursuit of a gold star of like an abstract gold star which I've seen a lot of people of color here or for the comfort of those around you yeah and like I think there's I don't know I've seen a lot of people of color here who it's they seem to like really value the opinions of their white classmates and like they care about whether or not they're liked by them Mm -hmm. and I get it I mean you know I think that's internalized racism like this need to feel validated by white people but I absolutely do not want to live my life that way at all like mm, no yeah and it's so I'm so glad that you brought up like other people of color because I also think like that's something that's hard to talk about just like I've I think I learned this the hard way where I've learned to like just because someone's a person of color or someone has some shared experiences with me like versus like a white male doesn't mean I can trust them any more than the white male and it's I think it's because of things like internalized racism but who knows there might be more going on there but yeah it's it's really hard and that can be like gaslight you so much when you're seeing someone say something that you're just like is come you feel like it's so so outlandish 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 oh god i can't say that word whatever y'all understand um and it, it just it can really fuck with you to have to always be on guard and it's also part of like why it's so exhausting to be here and why i opt out of so many interactions because like i i can't be unpacking everything and people aren't taught to be like thoughtful or intentional i was just at this like group discussion and I feel like there was, like, we were supposed, we had just seen, like, we watched a, f- a film about, um, we watched the documentary. I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to put them on blast. And we went around processing, and it was a really tough documentary. It was just, like, very real about what's going on, and I'll recommend it some way, somehow, without uh, making it too obvious that I was talking about them. But everybody, nobody, like, was using I statements so, like, I brought up a point and someone who – I brought up a point in disagreement with someone else. And I just, like, voiced that because I, I didn't agree with what she was saying. Um, and, like, two or three comments later, she's, like, responding to what I said but using, like, the we should all be doing this or we all need to do this or – or and then she, like, threw her own experience at me. She was like, I did it this way and I think that was the right way to do it because if I hadn't – I would they're like all this stuff and just like major shade and instead of just like addressing it or being intentional and like that was so much work and then later on in that conversation like I voiced an opinion about something that I struggled with and everybody started giving me advice but I was just like I I wasn't asking you for your advice like I was making a comment about our society but it was just like that interaction it was supposed to be a powerful you know in a space where everybody cared about this issue that we showed up for this documentary and wanted to get educated and yet like i left feeling so exhausted and so like just like shat on and it was just like just little things by like use i statements you know like disagree with an idea reply to the person you know don't don't make it seem like indirect because that's just passive aggressive or you know be like this has worked for me I think that this should be the way instead of like you should try this you should do this um I've thought about this but really I regretted it so you should do it this way it was just all these interactions like it's so toxic sometimes and you know it's hard to tell which ones are the safe spaces 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I feel comfortable opting out because, like, what that story demonstrates to me is that that person who's in that conversation is really just not equipped to be able to have a full dialogue with you and to be able to see you as a full person or a person mm-hmm. whose ideas are worth listening to. And, like, I, I think I've met a few people of color who have this idea that, like, we need, like, you know, that we need to, that it's our job to educate white people because if we don't do it, then who else is going to do it? Mm-hmm. And I just fundamentally disagree with that position because I feel like you can't tell the person who's oppressed how they should react to their oppression. Mm-hmm. And so, like, why would you be expected to participate in a conversation where a person doesn't know how to use I statements where a person is being passive aggressive and also where like this whole group of people see you as a person who they need to give advice to. Yeah. It was super patronizing. Like there's this weird dynamic, which I've appreciated Yvette in our friendship. Like you have not like you've been so great about this where because we're in different grade levels. <laughs> people can be super patronizing to people who are a grade level below when you're like the same age or even older than them. It's like this really weird dynamic where when people start talking down to me, it's like, I'm your same I'm the same age as you I might even be your elder so you you need to sit down <laughs> I know I mean I don't pay attention to that because I think that's because I don't buy into I don't buy into the social structure the people who do that are people who like have totally buy into the social scene as like a thing worth participating in because they're going to gain some kind of social capital and like they think that there's an important difference between being a 1L or a 2L like I, you know, I think the only difference is that you have, like, more experience, and so you can just, like, share that with everybody, but the thing is, like, law school is such a random myriad of experiences, everyone, and just depending on what you want to do, like, the stuff, the internships that you do, the pro bonos that you do, the extracurricular groups you're part of are all going to be so different that I don't, I just, I mean, I, I think this is, this is related to how I see myself in relation to other people but I just would never think that it it would be appropriate to talk down to someone because my experiences are just a random compilation in the way that theirs are and like yeah I don't know I don't know and it's like we're people outside of law school so like you know the fact that someone's a year ahead of you in school should be really minuscule compared to like all of your other life experiences yeah although I will say I am perfectly fine talking down to a white male like I sometimes feel like it's for their own good <laughs> and for my own good too. So, so that's, that's the only ca- caveat I would add to that. I'm totally fine condescending to white males. Oh no. Yeah. I do condescend. Yeah. I, I agree. I mean, I think it can be, I think pettiness can be healing. I know we'll get <laughs> on Twitter and I know I, I do agree because like, yeah, like there's this one white dude who sat next to me in this, like the, in the research and writing one L class that we have to take or a part of it that we have to take. And like, he just was like archetypal like I'm so confident even like he like had a grasp of the material and so he was like I'm so smart and was like (laughs) so confident in himself and I think he would get mad because I don't like to condescend to people but I am like pretty good at doing it when I do want to do it and he would and I would do it to him and he would get so flustered and mad like, he just didn't expect me to be doing that to him. Mm-hmm. And that made me feel so good. Uh, yeah, I think being petty can be healing. Yeah. No, I completely agree. <laughs> so something else I want to ask you. Do you regret your decision to come to Stanford? Um, I mean, it depends on the day, but, like, usually not. <laughs> If something bad has happened, maybe. But I think that, I mean, first, like, I'm pretty happy with where I'm at right now. I don't have that many things figured out, but I have, like, a pretty good understanding of at least, like, what the next year is going to be like, which is all that I need these days to be happy. (laughs) And so I wouldn't, like, I don't like, I usually always answer these questions as, like, no, I don't regret it, and I would do it again because... I do believe in like alternate paths and alternate realities and I just wouldn't want I wouldn't want to risk like having another experience that lands me in like a totally different place because Mm -hmm. I like this position enough where I feel like 
more likely than not, it would be better than whatever alternate reality I would be a part of. Which I guess says something. I guess it says that, like, I don't totally regret it. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It was. I mean, with, with both Yale and Stanford, like, I think what I always say to people is that I have a complicated relationship to my experiences there because at Yale and then even, yeah, and at Stanford, like, I've met people who are really cool and I think I've met people who understand me in a way that, I haven't really felt understood in other ways, but I'm mostly just like when I meet other Latinx people who are here, who mm-hmm. have, who are from my same class background, I feel like a certain kind of kinship and solidarity, which is invaluable. And I also, I learn a lot. I don't know. I'm just very nerdy. Like I do like just learning. And I think that, I mean, learning here is bogged down with so much bullshit that it's, it gets to be not enjoyable anymore. But like, I think there's, I still, I still enjoy that. I, I recognize that the quality of education that I got is like very high, even if I don't agree with everyone's politics here. I can say confidently that like the, the professors that I've had know the, know the area of the law that they teach very well. Um, and, you know, it's like I have job security and I have a good loan repayment program. So, no, I don't regret it, but I'm like counting down the days to graduation. I don't know. Do you do you regret coming here? I told you not to come here. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Let's let's actually add that story right here real quick. So Yvette and I met during Adamant weekend last year. I was the Adamant. She had she was in her first year here. And yeah, she told me she hated it here and she told me I shouldn't come here. And then I showed up in the fall. <laughs> I know. I was I like agreed to host some it's I like didn't want to host anyone at first because I knew that I would be really negative. I just like didn't feel like that was appropriate. Mm-hmm. I feel like only people who are enthusiastic should host. But then like someone shamed me. They were like, "Oh, you're you." They said something like they knew that they would get me. They said something like, "Oh, like how are you not gonna host someone? You're supposed to be down for the community or something like that." I was like, "Oh, I was <laughs> I was highly offended and mad." So I was like, "Okay, yeah, you're right. I have to host somebody." I felt hypocritical. And yeah, I mean, I wasn't going to lie to you. I, 1L was really rough. I was in a different mental space also. I don't know if I would say exactly the things that I said to you. I think it was pretty harsh towards Stanford. Yeah. And I think it was so nice. Like I remember the moment you turned around. So I didn't know who you were because I didn't, they didn't like give us a picture by any means or anything. So we were just like in the courtyard and like, I was talking to someone and I was telling them like, I'm hesitant to come here because I don't want to come to another institution that, um, makes me feel like I have to be like oh so grateful that I'm here and I feel like at that comment you turned around I think you overheard that and then like I was and then somehow we figured out that you were my host and then like I repeated that comment to you and you're like yes and I was just like oh my god we're gonna get along great (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, no it's true no but I don't I don't regret coming here I especially now like I'm much happier now than I like I feel like things have just gotten better and better. Um, not, yeah, I think it's because I've, I've really like z- zoomed in to the things that I really, really like and just do that. I do so much of that. And I also like, it's just a matter of like, friend, my friendships have gotten stronger the longer that I'm here and the more you get to know people. Like we're finally past like, oh, what classes are you taking? And like getting to know each other and like our their families and where we come from and our experiences and what drives us. So I feel like the relationships are, the friendships are becoming much more authentic um so I really enjoyed that and I just like I really like the the things I'm going to be able to do with this degree you know so I'm seeing it now like I I go I volunteer every week at a jail um and just every now and then uh one of the men will ask me like oh what do you do like are you a lawyer and I'll be like no I'm a law student and they're always like oh where do you where are you going to school and I'm going to Stanford they're like oh so you're smart and just like that like that trust they have in me and they also get proud because they do like read me as a woman of color uh and so especially when I'm talking to a Latino male like there's a little bit of just like oh like I'm so proud of you um and I think that in in and of itself is meaningful but then to be able to go home and then work on their whatever legal questions they ask me and give them that service it means so much to me and the same when I was like volunteering at a detention center like I love the things I'm able to do with this and now that I'm like in classes that I enjoy more that I'm hanging out more with the people that I really enjoy and kind of not doing it like there was a musical going on tonight like and I'm sure it was great people seem to work really hard but I was just like I know I'm gonna go and it's gonna take more energy out of me than give me so I'm just like I'd rather record this podcast drink micheladas with Yvette and 
because of this, I feel like I am a lot happier and I am happy. Like, I can say that I'm happy here. I know. As we're talking, I feel like I'm just realizing, like, I think that our experience here has gotten better because um, we've... I I think it's being surrounded by people who don't know what they want to do forces you and who are so stressed by oh everything. my gosh yeah yes. forces you to forces you because like i think both of us neither of us likes being stressed unnecessarily but there's people here who like are driven by stress and so for me personally like because i don't like being driven by stress i had to think like what do i need to do that i care about and what do i not need to pay attention to and i'm wondering like how much is it like oh they're driven by stress and just like also they just don't have perspective like yeah. when I think about like the things that I'm dealing with, like there I'm I'm following Brian Stevenson's advice about being proximate to those communities that I want to be a part of, and being proximate gives me really good perspective, you know. So it's just like when I'm like freaking out about something, I'm like it'll get done, it'll be fine, like I'll figure it out. No matter what happens, like I have a good support system, you know. And it's just like I'm not gonna be stressed because things seem hard. Like that's things are so much harder for so many other people like we have it really good here yeah no definitely yeah i think that this experience just forces you to reflect and like prioritize your values yeah so i don't know if that is a great analysis of navigating an elite institution but you know that's very real to our experiences and yeah that's yeah um okay let's go into our uh, second to last segment for this episode Yvette do you want to introduce the first case that we're covering yeah so the case that I wanted to talk about is Utah v is it Streif or Strife I think it's Streif Streif oh, this is always a thing pronounce pronunciations is it yeah English is my second language anyways um okay so this was a fourth amendment case um and the Fourth Amendment just relates to what the cops can do when they search you or when they seize you or your property. Um, and so in this instance, there was a detective who got a tip about drug activity in a household. Um, the detective stopped someone who was leaving the residence that he was targeting. And during that arrest, the detective found out that there was a warrant out against that person. And so because there was a warrant out, the cop could then search him and they found drugs and paraphernalia on the person. Um, The district court eventually ended up finding that the detective didn't have enough evidence to warrant stopping the man. Um, So the issue here was, should the evidence or the drugs and paraphernalia that they seized incident to the lawful arrest because of the warrant be allowed in? even if the that warrant was discovered by an unlawful stop because the district court ultimately found that that initial stop that the detective made wasn't warranted that there wasn't enough information justifying it um yeah and so the reason that there's like this question about whether the evidence should be admitted is because the supreme court has used not letting evidence in as the way to keep law enforcement in check. So when law enforcement does something that uh, violates a right, they won't let them benefit from that violation. So, for example, like whenever they do something illegal, if they can get like away with it by still prosecuting the person and bringing that evidence in, then they have no incentive to not do it again. And so this has really been like very much seen as the really only effective way to stop law enforcement from doing violations and it's even not 100 percent effective um so that's why that's why that was the main question here yeah um and so the court ultimately held that what the officer did in this instant didn't arise to flagrant police misconduct police misconduct Um, and so the stop was okay because even though it was an unlawful stop, that was more likely than not something stirred by racial profiling, uh, that was okay 
because the warrant, the valid warrant, weakened the connection between the evidence that was seized as a result of that unlawful stop. Yeah, so the reason I really like this case, well, not, okay, that sounds dumb. I don't like this case. It's a terrible outcome. This is the wrong decision. But why this case, I'm so drawn to it and go back and reread it so much is because of Sotomayor's dissent. Um, so Justice Sotomayor wrote a really, really powerful dissent. And honestly, I'd rather just spend so much more time on that than the actual case because l- really like the majority of the court just got it wrong and they will be on the wrong side of history for this. But Sotomayor's dissent is just, its it gives me so much energy. She really just calls things out for what they are. You know, she summarizes the law, right? So if anybody, if any of you are curious about everything a police officer can do within the like the limits of the law, it's a lot. Go read this case. She summarizes it really beautifully. So for example, she, you know, she has this line where she says, the court has allowed an officer to stop you for whatever reason he wants, right? So the justification must provide specific reasons but it can factor in your ethnicity, where you live, what you're wearing and how you behaved. Right. And so she just like outlines all of these. And for every everything she points out, she lists the case where the court has made this decision affirmatively decided that this is what we're going to allow our law enforcement to do. And it's really problematic. Um, But her it's just so powerful the way she writes. She literally calls the United States a carceral state and for a state that for a country that makes itself seem like the best democracy in the world, it's really significant, in my opinion, that a Supreme Court justice is calling it out as a carceral state. Yeah, I think I really like her dissent and just her opinions in general because I think that she cares about accessibility. And uh, I like the plain language that she uses in the dissent. Um, I think that's another good reason why it's useful to check out, even if you don't have a legal background. Um, She says, this, just plain and simple, this case allows cops to stop you on the street, demand ID, and look for outstanding warrants based on nothing. Uh, And that's particularly troubling because we know, because those in power, um, the white majority, have racist views and even, and like, even if your views aren't racist, you know, it's everyone carries prejudiced thoughts. And so what this opinion does is it allows law enforcement to execute those thoughts. And it's I think it's particularly troubling because the law already allows you to racially profile to a certain extent. Like they're already allowed to take into account uh, what neighborhood you're in the crime rate of that neighborhood what you're wearing what you're wearing right so and like these are things that are you know like what neighborhood you're in that's largely outside of your control and it's basically just saying that if you grow up in a poor neighborhood you're allowed to be policed more often than other people are yeah and just to clarify too something that like if you read the main opinion right to the the opinion that won they keep using like an arrest warrant this person had an arrest warrant he had an arrest warrant and it's they make it you know you read that and you're like okay so this person must have done something you know fairly bad that they have an arrest warrant for them or something and there's no there's nothing to make it you know it just seems like oh it's an arrest warrant and if you know nothing about them it sounds heavy right it sounds like oh well, that's a big deal, right, that this person had an arrest warrant. And even though that shouldn't matter, I think just for anyone reading it, it makes it seem less egregious, like the decision that the court then ends up with. And Sotomayor just calls that, like, calls that bullshit because she looked into it and Utah has over 180,000 misdemeanor warrants in its database because this was a misdemeanor warrant. This was not even, honestly, it wasn't even a misdemeanor. This was a traffic, like, traffic warrant that you know because it's unpaid or whatever for whatever reasons then comes up like keeps coming up as a warrant but there's 180,000 in the database of Utah and Salt Lake County where this took place had so many that it was actually like they could have been civilly liable for not like clearing that backlog of arrest warrants yeah it's it's just particularly troubling because 
I, I, like what this case means is that cops can racially profile you if they can produce damning evidence after the fact and the damning evidence doesn't even need to be that damning it can just be that you didn't pay a traffic ticket yeah and it's like okay so that's that was utah specific numbers right but she also talks about state and federal government so there are over 7.8 million outstanding warrants the vast majority of which are for minor offenses so 7.8 million outstanding warrants so that means i'm sure maybe one person has more than one warrant right but there are 7.8 million people probably a little bit less that could be arrested and it would be totally fine. Even if they were doing nothing like they're walking down the street, officer pulls them over, decides to run a warrant. There's 7.8 million people who that would be perfectly fine with, even if they're just like walking down the street. And then, so I read this and just thinking back to our earlier conversation of it, I'm not surprised that, you know, they would take Claudia for moving her parking, like her moving her car, a parked car. Like you literally can do anything to a person. Oh, yeah. I mean, th- this is we should also say this is for citizens. We're talking about citizens rights right now. Non-citizens don't enjoy any of. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, it's an open question, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I think and that's why whenever citizens rights are circumscribed, I always get so I get scared for all those who are not citizens, because what that means is that they get to be treated even worse than that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And just one thing that I want to talk about is is how race it comes up in this article because I've read so many cases where it doesn't come up. And Sotomayor just, like, puts that front and center. Um, and there's a lot of ways that she do that, like, and I, I want to talk about those too. But just, you know, in the original case, Terry versus Ohio, which is the case in which stop and frisk became okay and permitted. So in that case, you read through the whole case and there's no race discussion whatsoever, but it was very race-based. You know, the 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 officer was attracted, like started watching this man for something he couldn't define later. And that's just like coded language for like, there was a black man who the police officer just started watching because of all his own prejudices and stereotypes. Um, and in here, you know, like Sotomayor makes sure that's that's not the case. And you and she brings in so many great, like I think just like prominent and important people in, in, in their writings that I like am so glad are is now part of this like Supreme Court opinion. Yeah, I thought it was pretty funny because RBG who so many white feminists extol as this amazing bastion of liberal politics joined Sotomayor in her dissent, except for the last part where she, where she talks about race and where she talks about the U S as a carceral state, the most powerful part of her dissent, she did not join. And that's not surprising given the state of white feminism and like the history of white feminism. Yeah. And it's just, it's so powerful that she brings in, you know, Michelle Alexander, she brings in W.B. Du Bois, she brings in Ta-Nehisi Coates, James Baldwin, and she talks about how black and brown parents have to give their children the talk, right? To, like, keep your hands where they can be seen, to not talk back to a stranger. And, and she's acknowledging, like, the, the moment we're in where we're seeing a lot of this, when we're having these conversations while the rest of the court just wants to ignore it. And she can't get anyone to join her on this. Nobody else to do this recognition. She starts off this, her last section saying, writing only for myself. And I think like that's, I'm yes, call it out. Draw attention to the fact that no one, none of these other like liberal uh, judges, right, who are, we're supposed to be cheering on for and, and they're supposed to be our hope. None of them were brave enough and bold enough to do what she did. And I think it says a lot that they didn't join also because dissents are usually where justices get to really elaborate on um, opinions that they might censor a little bit more, that they might temper a bit more if they're writing for the majority. Like if if you're creating precedent, the idea is that you should create a narrow holding as possible in order to not create room for people to make problematic law later on. But dissents, you know, because what you're saying is not going to have any precedential value. You can just say whatever you want. And so so it is telling that RBG and Kagan did not join, that they decided to dissent in the case, 
that they felt like the holding was wrong, but they still didn't feel comfortable joining in her dissent critiquing the racial politics of the U.S. Yeah. They're just so far removed from it. And then I just also want to point out that even though, like, they did find drugs on him, right? So they found drugs and paraphernalia, and so that's, like, what the case went forward on. That shouldn't matter. That, like, nobody should be that and be like, oh, well, the police officer was right. Because this is the case where... Yeah, he was right, and so there was a case that happened, but all the times that the police officer stops someone, finds a warrant, and doesn't find anything on them, there is no case, right? There is no there is no attention drawn to it, and so it's like, it's not just the case that matters. It's the indignity, right, and the respect and, like, the harm to a person to be treated that way where it's like, I can just stop you whenever and make you do what I say and because you fear me and you should fear me and I can damage your life. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's just, there's so many things to say about the fact that this person had drugs on him. Like, I don't think drugs should be regulated or criminalized in that way. And so for me, it's truly inconsequential that he had drugs and paraphernalia. I think it's, you know, if that's what that person wants to do, that's what they want to do. I think drug usage and drug abuse is a public health issue. It shouldn't be a criminal issue. Um, and then also, like, I just think that that defendants should have rights because I don't believe that the government should be able to encroach in your daily life in that way. Like, I, I think that we, you know policy can be creative to try and incentivize better choices but i i don't want to live in a i don't want to live in a carceral state i don't want to live in a state where like you know you're suspicious because you're walking down the street and you're a person of color like i think that people people should be allowed to live their lives freely and and uh i think that that this case severely restricts liberties yeah, and not just, like, on the front end of, like, being stopped, but also just down the road. So once you are pulled into the criminal justice system, like, housing, getting a job, um, all these other things, just, like, it's, they add up and they add up and they make life really difficult, almost impossible for for individuals. And so it's not, it's, like, it just, it just creates this, like, huge butterfly effect, like, this first interaction with the law enforcement officer. So the fact that, the Supreme Court signed off on it and said, oh, that's okay because there was a warrant. That's just so misguided. And especially this opinion combined with what we're seeing from Attorney General Sessions and his direction. And even though the federal government isn't responsible for most of the rest or the prosecutions, like the states follow the lead. And so this is, I just think the Supreme Court, hopefully, I mean, if things don't change, they're never going to regret this. But I think we if if things keep like progress and i won't say keep progressing because sometimes it's where we don't progress but if i think this is just going to be seen as a huge mistake i hope so i mean i i think that the judiciary is flawed in ways that i don't really see being fixed anytime soon like yeah yeah i don't think it's a coincidence that a group of people who have just fundamentally different interactions with the police than an average person let alone like an average person of color has it's no coincidence that they decided to rule this way they're not scared when they get pulled over they get pulled over the cops gonna be like oh my god justice blah 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 (laughs) hello like they are driven around by their they have drivers and people who cook for them they they're not they're not real people who need to worry about being profiled by the police um, and I, I think that's like a fundamental issue with how social capital and power are distributed in our society. Um, so I don't see that changing anytime soon. And also, I feel like these people, I feel like they don't care. I don't think they're going to regret anything. But I regret their decision. Yeah. And I think, Yvette, just going back to like this, like I think this is a great point to end on um, because I, I think it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning for why we're even doing this podcast because there are too few of us because more of us need to be here because sadly like we need to get up in here and destroy this system and break these like incestuous networks of privilege because these people who are running the world like they're they're not like everyone else they don't have the same experiences and we, our voices are needed and the more we can uplift 
and start listening to these voices and stop shutting them out is so important and I mean I know I have a lot of privilege like I'm a light-skinned Latina and like my family is well off my dad has like a retirement and they own a home so much privilege but I yeah I think I'm seeing this as something necessary so that these people with these like really specific experiences that are not at all like anything else anyone else's the majorities keep making their decisions yeah i think our presence fundamentally changes whatever room we enter so should we do recommendations yes do you want to go first or should i go first well so we want to end on recommendations and I just want to second a recommendation that Yvette has been making for a very long time, (laughs) which is if you haven't yet watched Underground, I really recommend you watch it. And this is a recommendation I got from Yvette. And if you feel that you are someone who's committed to a cause, who's doing work, or you consider yourself an ally, watch this TV show and then just compare yourself. I know we're not... Spoiler alert, it's about slavery. Um, in the time period about slavery, I know we're not, I mean, personally, I think the criminal justice system is basically slavery all over again, but if you don't see it that way, and you don't, you say like, oh, we're not in times as, as, uh, dark as slavery, that's fine, but still compare yourself to these people who are committed to causes, and just really challenge yourself, and, and just think about it, that's all, just watch Underground, and think about the role you want to play. Yes. Uh, so I'd like to recommend another Hulu show that's called Handmaid's Tale. Um, it's a dystopian show where it's based on a novel, which Cynthia has read that I have not read, where, um, women, it's a world where women are only valued for their reproductive abilities. And given Mike Pence and Trump and a lot of the far right's rhetoric around women and reproductive justice, it's pretty scary to watch because you see the threads of thought between our world and their world. Um, it's really dark. I'll say that the my one critique of it is that they don't handle race very well, but I still think it's a worthwhile show. Um, it's very triggering every episode if you're a woke woman, but still worth the watch. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode. Who knows when the next one will come, (laughs) but keep an eye out for it. It was lovely to speak to you, Yvette. Bye.